recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 30 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. And you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at PR Law Podcast, all one word, PR Law Podcast. And you can subscribe to us on YouTube or SoundCloud as well. And we have launched a newsletter, and it's nice to see the names sort of adding up on there. You can sign up to be part of that at prlawpodcast.club. Uh, so we have a very big show planned today, Ewan. How are you doing? What's happening? I'm all right. Uh, you know, I, I woke up this morning, Cam, and I felt really, really bad for all of the kids out there because uh, trick-or-treating was canceled. No way. I didn't know that. Of Toronto. Wow. That's yeah. a big deal. Well, it's a big deal for yeah. kids. It really, well, yeah. It, it, I mean, it, it well, children and and I guess chocolate companies, right? <laughs> big deal for them as well. Um, but yeah, it was kind of sad. You know, last night I saw a few children wandering around in, in oh. costumes with no place to go. Yeah, um, you know, I understand people were doing things like uh, organizing sort of uh, like candy sort of like easter egg hunts but candy hunts in their mm. backyard to try and do something but you know kind of a, a sad state of affairs just because of you know all the all the covid stuff all the the ongoing issues there you know when i was a kid obviously i loved halloween and that would have been this would have been catastrophic to a kid who was into it and looking forward to it all month kind of thing um, yeah, I can see how that would really, really sort of bum some kids out. Um, here it was, I, I, you know, you and that Halloween is a huge deal in Hong Kong. Um, and because we've had such low COVID numbers, it was pretty much on. And so there were thousands of people out again and they had to bring in sort of the, the, the barriers along the roads, along Queens road and around Lang Kwai Fong. Um, because it was, it was, it's sort of like a glimpse into pre COVID days. It wasn't quite the same. There were still some restrictions in terms of how many people could sit around a table, but, um, yeah, it was, it was eerily close to, to what life was like pre pandemic. Wow. Well, that sounds nice. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a nice, it was a nice change. Anyway, we have a big show uh, coming up today. So, uh, including a very special guest. So let's get into that. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, Ewan, take it away. Well, Cam, I wanted to talk about the uh, the Supreme Court of Canada today, and we've got a fantastic guest I'm really, really excited about. Um, you know, employment law at the Supreme Court is kind of an interesting thing. You would think that because employment law affects virtually everyone, that cases would go to the Supreme Court of Canada all the time, uh, but they don't. 
In fact, in in the history of the court, there's really been only about just over 30 cases that have got to the Supreme Court uh, around employment law issues mm. specifically. And, you know, to get there, Cam, you have to get leave to appeal. And to get leave to appeal, you have to show that your case is of some public and national importance. So, I mean, in other words, before you're even able to go before the court and argue your case, you have to demonstrate that your case is worthy of being argued. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, as you can probably assume, very few cases are granted leave. I mean, in, uh, in 2019, the Supreme Court, for example, it granted leave to appeal in only 36 cases. Wow. That's 7% of the total leave applications. Mm-hmm. So to say that it's rare uh, would be something of an understatement. And, uh, you know, and then the numbers in the United States are, are similar. It's very, 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 very rare. But of course, getting there doesn't mean that you're going to win, right? Which is kind of what makes our guest today such a big deal because last month she accomplished both feats. So our, our guest is Allison Lee. Hi, Ewan. Hi, Kim. Welcome to Hello. the show. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. I've been uh, listening while I put my groceries away to you guys, usually on Saturday. So it's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, great. So Allison is an employment lawyer at uh, Sherard Coos. That's one of the Canada's leading employment and labor law firms. You can find her online at SherardCoos.com and we'll we'll put a, a link to her firm and to her, her bio page in the show notes. Um, but yeah, Allison, so tell us, can you give us a bit of a, you know, maybe a brief synopsis about what it was that you were arguing about before the, the Supreme Court of Canada? For sure. So at that point in time, uh, even though I'm now a management side lawyer, uh, at that time and for that case, we were representing David Matthews who was an employee who had been constructively dismissed after 20 years with his employer. Uh, And what a constructive dismissal means is that his employer didn't sit him down one day and say, David Matthews, you're being terminated. Instead, it's a legal finding that through their actions, they basically terminated him. So the lower courts had actually found that his boss, one of the executive members uh, of the company Ocean Nutrition, had enacted a campaign uh, over several years to push David Matthews out of the company. So what we were arguing about wasn't the fact that David Matthews had been terminated. That was accepted by everyone. But what we were arguing about was a million dollars. Because David Matthews was a long-term employee, and he was a management-level employee, which means that he was entitled to what we call a long-term incentive plan, whereby if Ocean Nutrition was sold or there was another realization event, uh, he would receive a portion of the profits. So the funny thing was, of course, that David Matthews knew, and the court found that he had known, prior to his constructive dismissal, that Ocean Nutrition was being sold. But he was constructively dismissed before the sale happened. 13 months after he was terminated, Ocean Nutrition sold, and he would have been entitled to a million dollars. So in Canada, there's this idea that when you're terminated, you're entitled to a period of notice, uh, basically that you should get some warning, and therefore, you know, your employer is supposed to say to you, well, employee Bob, I'm going to terminate you in five months or 10 months or 15 or 20. And the number of months is based upon your 
age and your length of seniority and so on. And of course, for David Matthews, the period of notice would take him over that 13-month mark. So the big question we were debating was, does he get the million dollars or not? And what's the outcome of them having uh, constructively terminated him? Does he still get it or does he get deprived of it simply because they terminated him? Right. Okay. And <laughs> the big reveal, what, what did the what did the court have to say about it? So at the end of the day, they did determine that David Matthews was entitled to that incentive bonus. So he gets his million dollars, even though he wasn't at Ocean Nutrition by the time it came due. So obviously, there's some impact for both employers and employees from that type of outcome. Uh, and it, it really is a case that resets and I think reconfirms some of the fundamental truths about employment law and how you calculate these things and what employees are entitled to. Uh, And so that's, from an employment law perspective, I think the interesting part about Ocean Nutrition uh, and David Matthews. Right. So so I guess the the idea really, if we can sort of break it all down and distill it, we're, we're sort of talking about the fact that it, the court provided some clarity in terms of bonuses and and other entitlements that would be owed during that that reasonable notice period you talked about right so an an employer can't just terminate an employee and say hey we think you're entitled to 10 months of reasonable notice we're just going to give you 10 months of pay they also have to provide those entitlements to things like bonuses or long-term incentive plans that you talked about during the same period. Is that right? Yeah. So fundamentally, your employer is required to give you everything that you would have gotten if you had worked that notice period. If they had sat you down and said, employee Bob, you're going to work for the next 10, 15, 5, 20 months, whatever it might be, and you're fired at the end of it. But if they say, we're firing you effective today, they still owe you everything that you would have gotten during that time period, despite the fact that you're no longer working that time period. Um, There's a couple of exceptions to that in terms of the court, of course, still says that your employer can disentitle you if the language is clear enough. But it has to be very, very clear. Alison, just from a a layman's perspective, uh, I guess it makes sense that somebody who is who is relieved of their duties would would be paid out, I guess, for whatever term that they would normally work. I guess the interesting part here is the 13 months. Is that normal? I I mean, I know he was in a management position, um, but how long was his his notice period? And is this is this common to have it over a year long? It was uh, 15 months for David Matthews, and that's not uncommon, but it has to be remembered that David Matthews had been with the same company for over 20 years. Uh, Mm. He was one of their senior executives. He was acknowledged by the court or found to be by the court, one of the few people who could have done his job. Uh, And he was 50 something, if I remember correctly, at the time he was terminated. So all of that together entitled David Matthews to a 15-month notice period. Uh, For an employee of lesser years or lesser experience, probably not quite as much. So what is your advice then for employers now in Canada, now that this this has happened? 
and this precedent has been set, how can employers kind of prepare themselves? And I guess, how can employees take advantage of this as well, if you look at it from both sides? So as an employer side lawyer, I'm, I'm probably going to naturally default to answering the first yes. one a little bit more <laughs> thoroughly, but it's, it's definitely for employers taking a look at your plans and doing a lot of forward planning. Uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure at the end of the day. And the real goal, I think, of every employment lawyer who, who services employers is to try to spot your problems before they become a problem. Uh, and that means when you're creating your bonus plans, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you shouldn't create them. Or it doesn't mean that maybe your employees don't deserve them. It just means understanding how that's going to work and then making sure you're achieving your goal. And there is nothing wrong with an employer and an employee agreeing to clearly indicate that that employee will not be receiving, for example, a payout upon the sale of business uh, if it's after they've been terminated. Because we can all imagine a situation where that just doesn't make sense uh, for a lot of, of certain circumstances. So there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's what the employer wants to do, they've got to be clear about it and they've got to make sure they're on top of it uh, and what they're doing. And I think it's important for, especially you see a lot of you see a lot of this in tech companies or growing companies where they start out small and you're not necessarily putting a lot of thought into these things when you've got two employees uh, and then it's 10 years later and you've got 300 employees, then's the time to think about it. You've really got to start planning then. Otherwise, it's, it's going to come back to roost in a couple of years. And to that point, Cam, uh, I'll jump in on hmm. behalf of the employees because I can. And um, yeah, I mean, really, I think what the big takeaway for employees is that particularly for more senior level employees, if you're terminated uh, after, a, you know, several years of employment and let's say you're in a situation where your employer determines that you're entitled to 15 months reasonable notice, well, you know, you might want to sit down with someone and review whatever it is that they've offered you, because just because they've given you, you know, your 15 months pay, have they given you your bonus entitlement over that 15 month notice period as well? Because if you're entitled to it, you know, often, depending on where you work, depending on your level of seniority, I mean, that bonus plan could actually be worth more money than your base salary over the same period of time. Yeah, this is this is really interesting because it does have a material impact on 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 people and and companies. Obviously, um, Allison, the the other side to this really is just the experience that you went through in order to argue this before the Supreme Court. I mean, can you walk us through that a little bit? What that was like when you were preparing and and when you were actually there? It is probably the most bizarre thing, if I can say it that way, that I've ever done. Uh, it's just, I for a lot of lawyers, I think. The more, uh, the higher the appeal court, the more interesting the rules and unspoken tests and so on become. So when Ewan had mentioned, for example, that to get leave to appeal, it has to be a matter of national and public importance, that's not really a codified test anywhere. Mm. It's just something that's developed because the Supreme Court of Canada doesn't give reasons about why it does or doesn't grant leave. So hilariously, you know that these cases got leave and these ones don't, but you have no idea why. So when you're trying to put together your leave to appeal application, you're a little bit in the dark. It's one of those unique ones where it's, for one thing, you might be arguing the case in a completely different way than you actually will be at the hearing, because you're not arguing on the leave to appeal application about whether or not you should win. 
right. you're arguing about the fact that there's a very arguable case, which means, funnily enough, sometimes you're arguing both sides of the case. <laughs> you right. know, to say, hey, look, there's really something here that needs to be dealt with. So that was unique. Um, and I have to put a, a great shout out there to using a Supreme Court agent who knows things like which way to bind your books and how to get things filed. You have to file sometimes 20 some odd copies of materials. And that's a lot of logistics and effort that I think a lot of people don't think about. And it requires a really great team. Uh, so Supreme Advocacy LLP in Ottawa, that was uh, Eugene and Mary France, did a great job for us. They're the ones who knew how to get our 20 books printed. You have to bind everything backwards for the Supreme Court of Canada so they get you know, weirdly empty pages and then the full page, which is not the way you would normally bind a book. All sorts of strange and unique things. Uh, and you really do need a good guide through it. I, I've got to ask, Allison, I mean, just how intimidating is it staring at that bench? Like, I understand you had seven of the nine judges that day that you you spoke. Is that right? That would be right. What's what's that like standing standing up to that podium, looking that looking at that bench of, you know, just I mean, I mean, just remarkable intelligence experience. They know your case inside and out. I mean, what's like, what's that like? It's incredibly hard to articulate, actually, just because I was or I had the privilege of being the last person to argue at the case because I was doing the responding uh, argument for David Matthews, which means we're the last people to go. So I had just watched because we had a number of interveners on the case. I had just watched a, a large number of senior and well-respected lawyers uh, in the employment law bar from across Canada argue various positions. And then here I am, you know, a lawyer of a good couple of years, but nowhere near my respected colleagues, going to go talk to seven lawyers who are the sharpest people I think I've ever encountered. You know, a judge will always read your materials beforehand. But the Supreme Court judges had read the materials, digested the materials, read their own materials, thought about it a lot, and come up with articulate and ridiculously incisive questions. And I'd seen them do this to every lawyer before me by the time I stood up. Uh, and they had thought of things that, to put it quite bluntly, none of us had, uh, and right. have all sorts of background to it, right? And uh, But it's like any, I think, standing in front of any judge. In that moment, you just blank it out. Remember that judges are people too. Uh, and then do your best to articulate your point. It's it's a bit of a blur to me, to be quite honest. Well, and that's great advice, right? I mean, we hear lawyers talk about that all the time. Hey, judges are people too. Um, but that's pretty remarkable that in that moment going through what you're going through, you were still sort of able to to have that have that perspective. I, I'm lucky, though. As Ewan knows, I once clerked uh, at the Federal Court of Canada. And so the thing I always remember when I'm standing in front of a judge is that we used to have lunches with the judges at the federal court, all the clerks. And something about seeing a bunch of judges with brown bag lunches and like pulling out cheese and ham sandwiches and like <laughs> chit chatting to you about how their wife <laughs> packed it that morning while they ate. That's what I think every time I stand up in front of a judge. Maybe this person too has a brown bag lunch and they're going to sit down like any other person and eat it afterwards. That is, that is a great way to think about it. I have, I, sorry, you and I have to ask, so Allison, uh, you, you mentioned that the other lawyers were going up there before you and making their arguments and that you, through that process, got some more information. But I mean, 
for me anyway, I think that would have added to the intimidation factor just because you have to sit there and wait as all of these other people go first in a way like I'd rather go first myself and get it over with and let everybody else come after me. But I mean, how did you view that? Did that add or, or did it make it more more difficult or more intimidating? It's a, it's a little weird because so I was co-counsel uh, with another lawyer and he did our arguments on the appeal, which go first. And then my responsibility is to reply to all the arguments that come in between and close out our argument that way. And so the you're right. It's more stress. You know, for the for the lawyer who goes first, you're done after that. You don't get to say anything else. You don't get to respond. But on the other hand, there's this sort of focus you obtain when you're listening so hard to everyone else and just scribbling out your notes because you can't have prepared your response beforehand. You're pretty much doing it off the cuff. You've got some idea of what's coming. Uh, but you're going to have to address the points that people seem particularly interested in or that we needed to address. And so I think your focus is so absolute for that, you know, hour or two hours where you're listening to other people argue that by the time you stand up, you're just sort of full to bursting of like things you need to say. And you've got your handwritten list of 10 items to hit and that's your job. And and hopefully by then you're just so focused on those items that you're pretty ready to go. Did you think at any point, I think we got this? Did that even enter your mind at any point in the process? Oh, man, that's that's a tough one, right? Because I think with any case, you think by the time you stand up in front of them, you want to believe your argument so strongly because that's how you convince other people. You have to have convinced yourself that you've got a solid argument that they need to hear. But I think every lawyer also knows that your job is to try to assess it. And especially in something like this, you swing between, we made some really good points, but this was a really arguable case. The Supreme Court wouldn't have heard it otherwise. And so maybe we didn't win. And you just go back and forth and back and forth. And afterwards, you sit with your co-counsel and you think, okay, well, you know, did the second judge from the right, did they look happy with us? But then the other one was very, and they're all deadpan through the entire thing. Let me be honest. They're all deadpan. Uh, but you do your best to try to break it down. But trying to predict what seven people think is impossible and you'll drive yourself out the window that way. So, right. And that's, you know, you, you make a really great point for any, you know, any young lawyers that are out there, any aspiring lawyers, Allison, you made a really good point. You saying, if you don't believe in your case, how's anybody else going to believe in it? Right. I mean, you get so wrapped up in your arguments that, yeah, you do. You start to think, well, how could we not win? You believe in it, but you also, you have to get to that place. You have to get to a place where, you believe in your argument because if you don't, there's no way that the judge is going to be receptive to it. And I, I think you hear it in people's voice when they don't necessarily buy the argument they're making. You know, and of course, sometimes as a lawyer, your job is to make every argument. So it might not be an argument you wholeheartedly think is the best argument ever, but it's got to be an argument that you think has merit or that needs to be brought forward on behalf of your client because your duty is, of course, to represent your client full-heartedly and, and with every defense you can or every argument that should be made. But you're not going to make an argument that has absolutely no merit. Okay, Allison, last question. What When you look back at this now, I mean, you, you have done the argument, you were there, and you won the case. Um, when you reflect on it, I guess, what, what, what do you think about it? And how do you think that experience has um, either made you a better lawyer or, or changed you if it has in any way? There's, I think, a, a couple of things to that. There's a sense I've always respected 
the Supreme Court of Canada who writes excellent judgments uh, and a whole variety of different things. I know they've had to master huge areas of law and so on. But to see them do it in person is a whole new sense of awe-inspiring because we all know how difficult it is to master any one aspect of any topic. And yet somehow they managed to obtain mastery over every area of law that they hear. And that was that was amazing and quite humbling, to be quite honest. Uh, and I think also the means of preparing for Supreme Court of Canada case is different. You know you're going up against some of the best minds. And those are the ones on the bench, not even counting your opposing counsel, who are going to ask you all sorts of questions. So you prepare differently. You prepare more flexibly. You engage with your argument in a way I think a lot of lawyers can't for smaller cases. And I think that method of preparation and the knowledge of how you can use a team to get yourself prepared and there and how valuable it is to have that type of preparation is probably going to last with me a good long time. Okay, Cam, I'm sorry. I got to ask one last question too. Go for <laughs> it. Mine will be as, as equally as broad. Uh, Allison, I, I mean, what advice do you have for any young litigators that are out there, young lawyers, young law students, young aspiring law students um, who have, you know, dreams of one day getting to argue before the Supreme Court? I would say, first of all, uh, that don't rule it out. You know, I definitely didn't think that was something I was going to do by the time I was 31. And yet somehow it happened. Um, And that's I think you just take opportunities when they come. You keep yourself open to them. Uh, And if it happens, that's great. But also not getting the opportunity doesn't mean you won't in the future. You know, we're lawyers. We can practice till we're 90 if we want. So, (laughs) you know, you don't have to do that today. And as you said, you and at the beginning, they don't come around that often. So if you get the chance, you embrace it. And if you don't, you keep developing yourself as a litigator. And who knows what amazing things you might do. Uh, It doesn't have to be before the Supreme Court of Canada. There's a lot of other ways to make law and there's a lot of other ways to make an impact in the lives of both employers and employees. That's great advice. Thanks so much, Allison. Well, thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. Great discussion there, Ewan. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you invited Allison on the show. It was uh, it was great to hear that perspective and, and very, very reflective, too. Oh, man, that was just uh, that was fantastic. It was very, very cool. And, um, you know, also even just listening felt like I got to sort of live vicariously through Allison, even just for a few moments of what that experience is like. Um, and for those who are who are interested in looking up Allison again, she's a lawyer at Sherard Coos. And you can find her online at SherardCoos.com. All right. Well, you went on the PR side, and uh, I, I'll keep it a little bit shorter today because we we, we had such a good guest earlier. Um, and it was an article I came across this week that was really looking at preparing for a crisis, like what companies can do to prepare themselves for something bad happening. And I thought this is quite... 
valuable because I think this year, obviously, with COVID-19, you know, there's been a lot of uh, crisis happening automatically and people are often in the throes of dealing with a crisis this year. And so preparing kind of takes a bit of a back seat. Um, but I thought it made some some good points for companies to consider when they are uh, or when their communications team is looking ahead to try and to try and prepare for something. So it's just five five key points I, I really wanted to to dive into here. And I will put a link to the article as well for, for background in the show notes. But the first one is consider where your company is exposed to risk. And I guess you and you may do this from a legal perspective uh, at some point for companies. But from a PR side, you, you really want to sit down and think about your business lines, think about what you're doing. And pinpoint the areas where there is risk. And and that means being candid internally and being open internally uh, to identify these things and, and start thinking about, is there a way that we can reduce the, the PR risk here? Or sh- is it necessary that there's no way around it, then we should sort of prepare if this is exposed or if this comes out or if this is, um, you know, targeted at some point, you know, how are we going to deal with that? So I, I think that process of really sitting down and thinking about where you're exposed to risk is important as a first step. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we do as counsel with, with employer clients as well, right? I mean, you want to sit down and try and lay out what, you know, what are our risks? How best can we mitigate our issues here? And it's one of those classic knowledge is power situations, right? The more knowledge, the more information you can provide a client with, the better the position they're going to be in to make a, an educated decision in terms of how best to go forward, right? Absolutely. And then the second one sort of ties into this, which is develop messaging for potential scenarios. And, you know, you and this is one thing I really dislike doing <laughs> because this takes a long time. I mean, and we, I mean, I have done this as, as, as recently as a few weeks ago and looking at a situation. Um, I mean, I've said before that I, I work at Tencent and we've been dealing with the issue of app bans in India and the United States and other places. And in these, in these examples, there's actually a number of potential outcomes. And, you know, what, what is our statement? What are we going to say? What are we going to do? Um, you know, for each of these potential outcomes, you know, what is the trigger point? So if there's a, a case that seems kind of quiet and we think, well, maybe we shouldn't say something now, but if it, if it gets more coverage, we'll say something. Well, what is that trigger point? What does more coverage mean? How do you define that? And this is a really important process to, to go through. And it, it does mean that when something happens, you already have, you know, some, some material on dealing with that particular outcome. Oftentimes you still need to update it. There's usually, you know, something unanticipated that happened. Um, but even just having something that is partially done is much better than trying to scramble to get something done. Yeah, Cam. And is that, I mean, I'm thinking of that, that point you made about being able to identify that trigger point. I, I mean, I take it, you know, in your line of work, that's really, that just comes with experience, right? Where you've been through enough of these scenarios that you're able to sort of identify where that moment has occurred or is going to occur or what direction the scenario could go in. I mean, what, what sort of tools do you have at your disposal to try and identify that precise moment? Well, it's, it's different for different businesses, but I think in a lot of cases, I mean, if you're, if we're talking about large companies, I think, you know, if it hits a a mainstream news organization, then you're clearly, 
you're clearly um, under scrutiny. And if it's kept to trade magazines or if it's kept to sort of smaller publications, then maybe, you know, maybe you deal with that. But I think one of the things that's really important here is there's often debate around this between management and the communications team. Because if let's say there is something negative about the company appears somewhere and it might even appear in 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 a large mainstream newspaper, that doesn't necessarily mean that the company should respond or to put out a statement, or to write an op-ed, or do something. Because there has to be that assessment of, okay, there was one day of this article that appeared that's highly damaging to the company. Do we want to drag this? Because if we say our part on day two, uh, there could be a further rebuttal on day three, and our statement pulled apart that makes news for a couple of more days. And is that worth it? Is it worth being in the news for several more days in a negative light? worth getting your side of the story in. And oftentimes management would say, yes, we need to defend ourselves. We need to get our side out there. But the communication side would look at it and say, look, it's been one day in one article, you know, that it's negative. Let's just leave it alone because tomorrow people will forget. They'll move on. Um, and so this is something that comes up a lot. It's debated a lot. And it does take sort of experience to look at and go, is this going to be a one day phenomenon or is this something that could gain traction and we should get out ahead of? Um, and, and there's not an easy way to do that, really. I mean, you, you want to, I've, I've said before, to really focus on media monitoring. Um, you want to get a heads up right away when, when someone's written something so you can make these decisions as, as quickly as you can. Right. And then, of course, hope that the lawyers don't get in your way. Yes. <laughs> That's something you and I have talked about in the past. I know it's something you have to deal with. It's something I've had to deal with from from the other side of the table, right? When you have those differing perspectives of, you know, do we keep quiet? Do we get out in front of this? If we're going to get out in front of it, how do we do that? And, you know, when uh, when you and I are sitting at opposite sides of the table and we start butting heads on how to best answer that question, <laughs> things can get very complicated very quickly. Yes, yes. There's always these battles between, yeah, the, the legal team and the PR team. These are very common in every company I've worked at. Uh, so, yeah, that happens. I think the, the next one is important, too, and often overlooked, which is know how you're going to disseminate your message. And so if you do have a crisis plan in place that says, you know, we're going to issue a statement or we're, um, you know, going to write something for here or whatever it might be, you need to know exactly where that's going to go. Like, is, is the statement something that you're going to email to journalists? And if so, which ones? Does it need to be translated into another language, depending on sort of where you're where you're working or who your clients are? You know, these kinds of questions are really important. If, if you want to write an op-ed, for instance, you know, what, what newspaper are you going to pitch that to? This has to be thought about as much as possible in advance. So you're you're ready because each of these these components is a discussion by itself. It's a debate all by itself. And so if you're in the middle of the crisis and you're having to have these kinds of discussions, it really takes up valuable time. So you want to at least have a, a blueprint for this sort of thing in advance. And I think, sorry, you in point four goes sort of together with this, which is uh, appoint key players and develop relevant policy. And, you know, when, when, when this happens, you know, the key players are really who is in charge of managing the crisis, who is going to speak to the press. If we're going to do interviews, you know, do you bring in your PR firm and at what time do you do that? I think of, you know, examples in my own career in the past, you know, you may have a trigger point where, you know, this article appears in a, in a major 
mainstream newspaper. And if that happens, we're getting on the phone with our legal team and our, our, our communications agency, PR agency, and, you know, the head of legal internally head of PR and and maybe a couple of other executives to work out the next steps. And so you want to have those names written down somewhere and their phone numbers, and they should be notified that if this crisis happens, you're part of the the group that's going to come together immediately uh, to discuss it. So, so the dissemination and the appointing key players, I think are both, both, you know, they're, they're related and they're both very important. Yeah. And to that point, in terms of the names and the key players, how do you, determine when you're talking about press, for example, and specific journalists or specific publications, how do you determine who you're going to go and talk to and who you're not going to talk to? Well, if you have a PR team, so again, this is different, I guess, if you have a big company or if you're a a startup or a medium-sized business. I think large corporations are are going to have a communications team that will probably already know the journalists. So like in my case, where I work now, I know a lot of the journalists personally very well. So when, you know, management comes to me or there's other opportunities for us to pitch something or say something or get our side of the story out, I know kind of who may be most receptive to that. And depending on where we want, you know, that to appear. And this is a process that we go through every day. So so knowing knowing the people who cover you, I do think is important. If you're a smaller business, I think it does make sense to spend a bit of time at least trying to identify who writes about you know, your sector or your, your business to get a few ideas. If you're, if you're a very local company, you know, the local reporter, if you've got a local, you know, newspaper, local radio station or something like that. And then if you're larger, yeah. Who's, who's covering your industry uh, online. And there's actually services that can help you with this. Tellum is, is a big one. Uh, Muckrack is another one, which is really popular at the moment and, and that we're using. Cision is another one. These are services where you can actually sign up, go in there and see all the reporters. And you can do a search and say, like, I want somebody who covers employment law. And you can see the reporters who cover employment law. And you can, you know, narrow it down to a specific city or region or country. Um, And then it's got their email in there and their phone number. And it keeps track of their social media, uh, you know, what they're posting. And it keeps track of the articles they've written all in one profile. So these tools are out there. They're relatively new. Cision's been around for quite a long time. But they're they're very useful when you want to pitch something or you want to track something or you want to follow something. Um, You know, these kinds of tools I think can be worthwhile. Wow, Cam. Well, I mean, every week you teach me all kinds of things <laughs> that I should be implementing with our with our firm that I had no idea about. I mean, this is a whole other world um, that I didn't even know existed. And I, I didn't know that there were sort of tech products out there or, or apps that um, specifically target this sort of work. I mean, what? Yeah, that's, that's just crazy. Yeah. I think a lot of companies might not know, uh, and they're not, um, I mean, these services are not new really. I mean, they have been around a while, but they are getting better and better. Uh, I mean, we've just, uh, signed up with Muckrack and I, you know, I found them to be fantastic because you you can track things, um, you know, really easily, which is important. And I will put a link to those, those things in the, in the show notes. And then the the fifth and last one you, and, and we've talked about this, I think, probably almost every week, which is be prepared to take responsibility. And 
you know, we've said previously in communications crises where, I mean, depending on what it is, you want to come out. If it's if something bad has happened or if there has been some problem or somebody has been hurt in some way, some group or, or a customer or whatever it might be, that taking responsibility is really the first step to repairing your reputation. And that if you don't do that, um, it, you can seem very defensive and um, it's just not a, it's not a good look. Now this does depend on exactly what happened. It's, I mean, it's not a hundred percent of the time you should just go out there and take, take responsibility. It does depend, but it is something that I think that companies should be prepared to do that being and oftentimes here to you, it is where management wants to fight or they want to, uh, you know, come out and uh, sort of argue their side of the story. And it just that doesn't usually end well, uh, at least not in public. I think doing that uh, behind the scenes is one thing, but in public, you don't want to be seen that way. Um, and so this is this is an important one, too, I think. Right. Yeah. And we've talked about this at length around issues of cancel culture, right? And all of the really great ways that companies can address these issues and then all of the really terrible ways that other companies have addressed these issues. So, um, yeah, that's certainly going to be a live, a live issue going forward. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, Ewan, do you have anything super exciting this week? Well, actually, I wanted to talk about this last week, Cam, and I didn't I didn't get around to it. We obviously just had too much stuff going on. And um, it was an article I read and it's it's actually a bit older. It came out October 9th. Uh, it was published by Leland Nally. And this is titled I called everyone in Jeffrey Epstein's little black book. Mm. What I learned about rich people, conspiracy, genius, gizzling stand-up comedy and evil from 2000 phone calls. I don't know if you read this, Ken. No, I have not. It's I didn't insane. know. It's absolutely, absolutely insane. Um, you know, it, it sort of opens talking about how Jeffrey Epstein's little black book is in fact not little at all. It's uh, it's huge, and it contains all kinds of of random tidbits. And this was what was sort of fascinating. It goes through all of the almost obsessive compulsive like details that are in the black book, and then of course all of just the other craziness uh, at the other end of the spectrum. And this individual goes through and he calls. So how <laughs> many people, people, I mean, don't give it away, I guess, but I mean, how many people were willing to talk about him? Oh, you know, Cam, this is one of those ones. I don't even, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Just, just, okay. <laughs> it's a long, it's a very, very long article. I'm going to, I'm going to put that disclaimer right out there. It, it, it takes a while to get through. You may, uh, depending on how much free time you have, you may have to dedicate a couple sittings to get through the whole thing, but boy, is it worth it. It was just it was just one of those things where I was like, "Are you kidding me? Really? This is it, it was just crazy. It's completely crazy." Wow. Okay. Yeah. That this sounds like something I definitely want to want to go through. I mean, I have there's a couple of good podcasts that have dealt with the Jeffrey Epstein story, and I mean, it, it's horrific when you really get into what he was doing. It's just amazing he got away with that for so long, decades, literally decades. Um, yeah. Well, I talked about the the Netflix show. I remember when it initially came out, and we, we talked about it briefly on the show. So this was this was actually a really good sort of complimentary piece to that um, because it just gave so much more detail directly 
from his book, right? Um, that's what I found just, just so compelling that it was just all there in in black and white. Well, uh, my item this week, Ewan, uh, and, and people probably have heard about this already, I, I, if not read it already, but it's um, Glenn Greenwald who uh, founded The Intercept uh, and who is sort of a famous journalist. He really made a name for himself around the Edward Snowden story. Um, and other other issues around surveillance. Um, and he resigned this week from The Intercept, and he resigned in really uh, a blaze of glory. <laughs> he, he, um, he wrote a long article uh, about how The Intercept has lost its way and become something that it was never meant to be. Uh, and he published on a separate platform, Substack, the article that he says uh, The Intercept would not publish. And it's an article critical of Joe Biden. And he makes the argument that the media has basically been silent over Joe Biden because they so badly want Donald Trump to disappear. And I think I've heard this before. Other journalists have said this before. And I, and I want, I think this is an interesting read, but not for the reason that you would think. I actually disagree with Glenn Greenwald and I'm not a Glenn Greenwald fan at all. I do find him to be a little bit egotistical among other things, but it's, it is a fascinating story just because he did out everybody. I mean, he, he published the comments of his editors at the intercept and you can read through them. I think his editors actually made good points, you know, in, in getting back to, to Greenwald. And I don't know what's going to happen here, but there is a group of these journalists now that have really come out basically accusing the mainstream media of having this sort of institutional bias and censorship. Barry Weiss is another one. Um, there's, there's a few of these, these reporters. And so there is talk of them sort of forming their own media organization uh, now. So I will add the uh, resignation article and the article uh, to the Biden piece that The Intercept did not run, but he published on Substack. So I'll get both of those. I don't know if you heard about this, Ewan, uh, last week. No, I didn't actually. This is this is news to me. So yeah, I'd like to read that. Yeah, it's it's uh yeah, it's a lot of a lot of gossip and a lot of journalism stuff. So uh, anything else you wanna you wanna add, you dog? Well, I mean, I guess this is the last our last episode before yes. our, uh, our my our friends to the south here will. Uh, well, I guess to my south, they're not really they're not no they're not really to not your to my south. south. <laughs> To, to what used to be your South, I guess, back in the day that you, you lived here in good old, uh, you know, Canuck town. Um, I just wanted to say this, Cam, I know the election is next week and I know this, things this are so incredibly polarized in the U S and have been for some time. And I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm hopeful that regardless of who wins that on some level, the two sides will come together in some way for the better of, of the country. You know, I, I often think about, and we often compare on this show, sort of the differences between the Canadian political system and the, the American political system. And one thing I've always admired about the American system is that typically in Canada here, where, you know, when the prime minister decides that his party is going to vote a particular way on a particular issue, everybody gets in line. The party whip gets out there and all of the members vote the way that the PM ultimately tells them to. And in that regard, the prime minister is actually, you know, a lot more powerful 
than the president, at least within within the confines of his own government. And one of the things I've always admired about the U.S. the U.S. system is that when you know a member of the House or a member of the Senate disagrees with their respective party, that they can vote against that party, that they can do that, that that's traditionally been an okay thing to do. Sometimes it's been incredibly controversial, but that it's typically been an option that's been open. And for whatever reason, over the last number of years, that sense of bipartisanship, of going against the grain of your own party, it seems to have largely disappeared and been eradicated. And I don't really think that either side is the better for that. I think that one of the things that makes the system so great in the United States is that the two parties do have the ability to come together and to work together. So regardless of what happens next week, Cam, uh, I hope we can get back to some of that bipartisanship and a little more positivity within within the system. I am not holding my breath. Uh, here's the question, Ewan. Yes or no? Will we know the winner of the election by the time we record the next show? <laughs> I, 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 I really, I want to say yes. Of course we will. Of course. I, I, man, I don't know. I I'm going to really say we do. Know. I'm going to say we do. That's my, that's my guess. But okay we will know soon enough so thank you so much for joining us this week and thanks again uh to allison lee uh she was a, a fantastic guest and we will put a link to to her firm in the show notes uh, and we thank her so much for joining us this week as well so don't miss a show please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or you can subscribe in youtube or soundcloud and you can follow us on social media we're on facebook instagram twitter and linkedin with the account name pr law podcast and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, Allison Lee, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Listen to the PR and Law Podcast. Donald Trump gives it the strongest endorsement possible, and uh, we'll see what happens.